<coughs> but anyhow, now I give a talk about something or other. Today, this afternoon, that uh, usually you have to be very sick to do this, but I entered palliative care. Are you worried? <laughs> no, I'm really healthy. I entered palliative care just to go and visit the Kalamanda Hospice and give a little talk there, which was really nice fun. And there's a lot of things from that talk about end-of-life treatment. I noticed that many people here are getting on. <laughs> so you're going to face this sooner or later. And, but nevertheless, there's so many good little points of Dhamma to actually to share with you. You know the first of all, just at the very end of this talk, which I uh, gave this afternoon, that one of the nurses there in palliative care, they were just um, uh, saying, I asked, does your friends know that you work with people who are dying all the time? And he said, yes they do, but they said, oh that's such a sad job. And they said, but the opposite is the case. It's so actually inspiring you know, to be with people who are soon to pass away, to share those final few days with them. You know, number one, because that's part of my job, if any of you get very, very sick, is actually to come and give you some advice on how to die. If you don't do it properly, if you don't die properly, you come back again. And I have to do it all over again. <laughs> of kindness for you to tell you how to die well. But it's also there's a kind of honesty as well, uh, and barriers come down when a person is about to pass away. That's what I've noticed. They can kind of be honest with you. They got nothing to prove anymore. All the stuff in their life of trying to get on and trying to succeed in life that also disappears when a person gets towards the end of their life. And that type of honesty and the frankness about what life is becomes very, very powerful. There's lots and lots and lots of beauty, you see, when people pass away. But I was telling one story amongst many, because I've been with so many people who have been dying, and one of the stories I love saying is about in another hospice, and actually the first hospice here in Perth was in Shenton Park many years ago. I've been in this place for a long time now. So there was a Buddhist nun there, of Tibetan tradition, but I don't care. She was a Buddhist, she was a nun, and she had a cancer and she was dying. And I'm sure that many of you have seen this yourself, that when a person comes really close to death, they know. So she gave me a call over in Serpentine, the Bodhinyana Monastery. She said, I think I'm going to die within 24 hours. I remember her saying that specifically. And I trusted her so much that I dropped whatever I was doing, got a car, and then was driven into Shenton Park Hospice. And when I got there, 
and as fast as we could without breaking any laws, without having another person passing over to the other side, me. <laughs> so when I got there, he had to check in. And I always remember this nurse at the reception, because these are very sick patients. You can't just charge into somebody's room. Instead, you had to check in at the reception. And the nurse at this reception, she was the, the medical equivalent to Margaret Thatcher, if you remember her. She was so bossy. And what she said was, it's nice you come, but I'm sorry you can't go in. I said, why? He said, because she's given specific instructions. She wants no visitors. She's very sick. You can't go in. But I said, that's impossible. She just called me just over an hour ago and we rushed in to see her. And the nurse got very upset. And so the nurse actually grabbed me and dragged me to this uh, nun's room. And sure enough, on the outside of the door, she'd written a sign herself. Absolutely no visitors. And she pasted that on her door. And this nurse, you know the story, but I love telling it. It's an, I'm, I must be something, or maybe I need some counseling. <laughs> no, I don't. But she, <laughs> she saw that notice and she pointed to it and looked at me. See? She said, so I, I followed her instructions, I looked at the notice and sure enough, at the bottom of the notice, there was a, a line, except for Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> and I could not resist. See? <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. But I'm glad I did, maybe. And so I let myself in. But one of the things which happened afterwards, you know, the nurse stormed off. But anyway, one of the things I remember asking this uh, woman who was so close to death, she did die that night, she was accurate, she knew what was going on. And I asked her, I said, why did you write that notice? Why did you say I could go in but no one else? And that's when she gave me this wonderful compliment. All the other people I know and loved for years, my family, my friends, my loved ones, my associates in this life, whenever they come into this room, they always react negatively with their emotions. Oh, it's so sad. Oh, why are you dying? Oh, this is terrible. She said, it's hard enough to do with my own death without their emotional baggage as well. <laughs> she gave me a lovely comment. You're the only one who comes in here and tells me jokes. Please, what's the latest joke? So this is one of the stories which I said this afternoon about the man. He told his wife that he wanted to be put in his coffin without any clothes on. You can keep the coffin lid open if you wish, but I don't want any clothes on my body when I die. Have you ever thought of that? 
<laughs> but anyhow, <laughs> so it was his last wish. She didn't want to be haunted by him afterwards, so she buried him naked. But she, oh, she asked, why? Why, first of all? And he said, look, I've been doing a lot of business in my life. I know I've just you know, broken a few rules here, actually more than a few rules, that's why I've been very wealthy. Look, I know where I'm going. It's very hot down there. <laughs> I don't need any clothes. <laughs> so she buried him naked. <laughs> two or three days later, <laughs> two or three days later, he appeared as a ghost in her room, naked as the day he was born. And he said, wife, wife, have you still got that, that old gardening jumper I used to use and the old golf, golfing trousers? Have you still got them? He said, yeah, but what do you need them for? Didn't you go down to hell? And he said, well, actually, yes. But there's so many rich people down there, they've installed air conditioning everywhere. Okay, that's a stupid joke. I admit it. <laughs> but ne <laughs> nevertheless, it's so stupid enough to make this nun laugh. <laughs> and to brighten up her attitude, you know, when she knows she's going to die soon. To bring that energy to her when just a lot of time the body feels just so dull and so sort of heavy. That's the sort of reason why that I was allowed in. Please tell me another one. <laughs> she knows she's going to die. Dying is also done privately, but you need to boost a person up before that actually happens. And on this, that subject, how many of you have noticed that you know, you're with somebody who is dying, or your end of death experience? You're with somebody who's about to sort of pass on, and they're still know, with you, now, hour after hour after hour. And what does the family do so often? They said, well, now I think, you know, that we've been next to the bedside for the last three hours. Let's just go out for, for lunch for 15 minutes and we come back again. And how often is it that when you leave the room, that's when the person dies? I'm not saying to stay in the room to keep them alive. I'm saying, get out, because a lot of time, like death is a very private affair. You do it in your own way. You know you've got the support from your loved ones and friends. Now's the time, this amazing opportunity. You're leaving this body and just you know, going out of this body. How many times when you're meditating, get a very deep meditation, do you want your friends to be around? and talking to you and badgering you. <laughs> Sometimes you're using those similes for meditation. That it's a private affair. And it's also, people don't allow others to die with enough care. There is, uh, I can't really do it now, maybe tomorrow afternoon, I don't know, see how much time we have. But this was a little exercise when I was teaching in Hong Kong at uh, one of the uh, hospitals, uh, teaching some of the carers 
at the hospital. And it was a little exercise, because sometimes I talk too much, sometimes just doing something teaches you so much more. And in this little exercise, we had about 100 people there, split them up, doesn't matter, not gender or age or anything, you know, A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, split them all up, okay, all the A's get together, oh, all the A's and the B's, you know, choose one who's an, a B, you're an A, come together, and I want the A's, you know, you're all in the medical profession, you've all seen people have heart attacks, I want anyone who's an A, when I ring the gong, I want you to pretend, to act out, you have a heart attack. Have you ever seen anyone have a heart attack? You've probably seen it on the TV or something. But anyway, I'm sure you can act it out. You know, just talking with one another, and then... Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's real or not. But pretend, pretend you have a heart attack. And your friend, the B person, you're the A person, the B person has to be the first responder. What do you do? And it was just so informative that even people who should have known better, the person A dropped to the ground, and the person B said, you're gonna be all right, you're gonna be all right. No, don't, don't watch the light. Can you stay with me, keep your eyes open. Stay with me, stay with me. You're gonna be okay, please. And then afterwards, they had the debriefing. What was it like? And a person who pretended to have a heart attack said that was so disturbing. <laughs> this person is with me, trying to keep me alive, trying to say the ambulance is coming, you'll be all right. And just, they were just crazy. That was really disturbing. And so I said, okay, swap. Now, when I ring the gong, the person who's a B will pretend to have a heart attack. I rang the gong, and the B person, and the, the A person, having known what it's like to be just have the other person's emotional baggage land on top of you when you're trying to keep alive. <laughs> the, this time the, the A person said, oh, it's okay. Doesn't matter, we all have to die someday. <laughs> and they said it was a so much more beautiful experience. They were being cared for rather than being cured. How would you like your friend to respond if you have a heart attack? What would actually relax you? and give you a better chance of survival. Just getting this tightness and tension. Get an ambulance, an ambulance quick, when's the ambulance coming? Ring him straight away, ring another one. So that emotional <laughs> baggage, which sometimes people are used to, is not positive at all. And it's already given you the clue there, which it's applies to so many things in Buddhism care rather than cure. That's why I also made the point at the hospice, you, this is palliative care. Everyone knows it's not palliative cure. 
you look after the patients there. You treat them to jokes. You don't give them medications anymore except just to get rid of some pains. That's one of the reasons why some of my hospice stories now. I visited so many hospices in the years and one there was this Yorkshire, no sorry, he'd probably come and haunt me now. He was from Lancashire. And he was dying, he used to smoke when he was young. People never realized that it was really bad for your health. So he had you know, very terrible lungs, and so he got so bad, I had to put him in a hospice. And this was his story. I like this story because I can relate to it so easily. He was in the hospice the first night, and that's when the nurse said, Dave, <coughs> what do you want for dinner tonight? And that's when Dave said, I have high cholesterol. I can't have anything oily or fried. I've got diabetes, quite uh, severe diabetes. I can't have anything sugary or syrupy or sweet. I've got hardened arteries, so keep the salt away from me. And that's when the nurse interrupted him and said, Dave, you're not going to die of a heart attack through high cholesterol. You're not going to die because of your hardened arteries. You're not going to die because of some diabetes-related problems. You're going to die of cancer within about three or four days. You don't have to worry. You can eat whatever you want. Now, if any of you have ever been on a diet for good health, you know what it must feel like when the nurse says, you can eat whatever you want. And it's not going to be dangerous for you. So this man, his eyes went wide, his dinner plates, <laughs> and he ordered all this food, greasy, sweet, salty, which he said his wife would never allow him to eat for years beforehand. He ate so much. The weird thing was it didn't kill him. It didn't kill him at all. He went into remission. And he walked out of that hospice, totally alive. I saw that, and I kind of wondered, what on earth is going on there? He had six months of remission. Eventually he went back into the hospice, same hospice, and died properly. But he had an extra six months of his life eating whatever he wanted. It was the joy, the happiness. They just, uh, the thing which, you know, he was down against now was happening was open he could do it and that's one of the reasons why that you know he went into remission and that made a big impression on me a lot of time it's the negativity which kills us that's one of the reasons why and you know the story I've told so many times here if you really want to be of assistance to people 
Forget about trying to cure people. Care for them. If you care for people, the curing happens as almost like a byproduct. How do you feel? Do, peop do people care for you? It's amazing, just a little bit of care, kindness. How are you? What can I do to assist you? Do you want a cup of tea? Do you want a cup of something else? That care has a huge beneficial effect on people's lives. Which is one of the reasons why it's palliative care. I was trying to find out, I never really had the time this afternoon, what does that mean? I don't know, but anyway, I call like you know, the first word pal. Be a friend, be a mate, be a pal. Eative, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but at least it's caring as a good friend. How would you treat a friend? Take away the trying to keep them alive thing. Try and keep away the wanting to get them dead thing. Just learn how to just to be kind to people, to care for them. And that is one of the reasons why whenever I've gone to any of these hospices, because the, the need to cure people is taken away, they realize, I'm not going to cure anybody anymore. Instead, we're going to care for people. Care for people in these beautiful parts of their life, to make their last moments of their life beautiful and gorgeous and meaningful, full of you know, compassion and kindness, which is what Buddhists are supposed to be doing. Not trying to keep people alive at all costs, but keep people at peace and kind and fun at all costs. And that's one of the reasons why the palliative care thing is we should be doing more of that. You know, the, even the palliative care nurses were joking. It's such a beautiful place. They love to go in there before they're sick. <laughs> and that's a very good tick you know, for the community who work there. They make it fun, they make it joyful. They're allowed to do that as nurses. And one of the nurses said that this is one place she doesn't have to prescribe medicines. And she said, what a wonderful joy that is to know they're not trying to cure anybody. They're just caring for them. And when you care for people like that, it's almost like a little community in, of, in and of itself. It's a beautiful place to work. I don't know why more Buddhists, nurses and stuff don't actually uh, join hospices. It's a beautiful job to do. And also, there's something which um, I am very passionate about, is there is a myth in Buddhist circles. And many times, if you go to other monks, other than the monks at Serpentine, they will tell you, when it comes close to your dying, Please do not take these opioids like morphine, which will make you almost unconscious or like in a fog. Because it's so important when a person dies 
that they are mindful in their last moments. They often say your last thought is important. That is wrong. It's not your last thought, it's your last thoughts. Not one moment, but many moments of how you feel and not just thinking, your emotions as well. And unfortunately, that I've been through it with many people in their last moments. And I still remember just one of the Buddhists here, uh, when he was dying, that he had um, like a lung cancer, and he just could not breathe. Every breath was so hard to take. And he was really in a lot of suffering. So much suffering that, you know, he said to me, some kinds of these words you'll never forget. He said, Ajahn Brahm, can you take me out of the back and shoot me? You know, he wanted to die. That's how much pain he was having. And then just trying to sort of uh, zap or dull all of that bad feelings, painful feelings, just with uh, an opioid. It could be done, but he wouldn't do it because he thought he had to be aware at the end. I was so relieved when I went to a place like Singapore so to give lectures and especially be on a seminar about the Buddhist attitude to, you know, to dying and looking after people when they're close to death. I was giving the Buddhist uh, perspective on this and one of the doctors there was doing the medical perspective. And one of the things which I mentioned was this phenomena, which I've only just come across the last few years, you've heard me say this before, of terminal lucidity. It's a medical term, terminal lucidity, which was used over in Singapore at least, to describe what happens close to a person's death. I don't know if this person is here this evening, but one of the doctors who was working at Royal Perth, after I finished my talk, gave an example of terminal lucidity, which happened a day or two before uh, I gave this talk years ago. He said he was uh, a young doctor in Royal Perth, I think it was, and one of his patients started the dying process. Death is not an event, but a process over many minutes usually. Unless there's some sudden accident where your body is totally wrecked. But usually it takes many minutes. And this person entered the dying process. He was unconscious. I don't know if he was in a coma, but he was certainly just uh, not able to speak or recognize anybody for you know, quite a long time. And then, the instructions were that when he starts his dying process, please, now there's a book here with the names of my closest loved ones and relations, please call them, get them to come to the hospital one last time so I can see them. So that's what he did following the instructions of his patient who was dying. He rang the numbers one after the other and then one of the numbers there 
was of his daughter, Julie. And when he rang that number, she was home, she answered, Julie, come to the hospital quickly. Your dad is dying. And that's when he opened his eyes, a patient. Opened his eyes, he heard the conversation and said, please tell Julie, my daughter, how much I love her. And the next moment he died. That is not supposed to happen. The brain is supposed to be dead. At least masked with all the morphine or whatever else they were giving him to keep the pain away. But that is what I understand in Buddhist teachings of what happens when a person dies. When the brain stops, your mind takes over. The mind is something totally different than your brain. The mind can just use the brain, but the mind is more powerful than the brain and can take over many of its functions at the end. <coughs> Often I've told you those stories of children speaking, only a few weeks old, speaking in a grown-up voice. And these are people not imagining this, they experience it. And this is elderly people before they die. People with Alzheimer's who can't remember you at all. And then, just before they die, Nicholas, how are you? What have you been doing? They remember everything. The mind takes over from the brain. And that mind, when it takes over from the brain, has its memory. Just the same way you can hypnotize somebody and they can remember things they just can't remember with their brain. You can get into some deep meditations and remember just, you know, being in your baby's pram when you're really young. These are things which are real. The mind starts to take over from the brain. The brain is done for. And the mind carries on. That's the, what we call the terminal lucidity. As far as what your thoughts are concerned, the important ones, that is what happens when you die, even if you've been zonked out on morphine for days, if you had Alzheimer's and can't remember anything, if you've just had some of these other long-term injuries, like a brain cancer, which takes away your, your brain, faculties. It seems to be that you get to a certain point and that's when the mind does take over. Not just for monks or nuns who have been meditating, for each one of you. So if you're worried about your last thoughts before you pass on, you can take as much morphine as you wish to keep your mind and body sort of relieved of the burden of pain. If ever you've ever experienced a lot of pain, you know, for hours and days and stuff, which unfortunately people sometimes do, that exhausts you. You find you cannot think, you know, the thoughts you'd love to think. You're just in a really weird world. But if you would take those medications, number one, 
you wouldn't be able to think anything or anything which is logical. You know, when that pain is there, you'd be doped up. But it's almost, I can guarantee, those last moments of your life, the ones which count, you'd be much easier to actually to have a clear mind, a mind which is not exhausted through enjoying so much pain. You'd be able to have some beautiful thoughts when you die, in plenty of time to have a really decent rebirth. I mention that because somebody told me, not today, but actually a couple of days ago, you know, in a Zoom talk from Hong Kong, that he said I was, the, he also deals with uh, chaplaincy in hospitals in Hong Kong, that he says that I'm one of the only monks he knows who tells people to please, out of kindness, compassion for yourself and for the people who love and care for you, please take that painkiller before you pass away. Because the time when you really need to be clear, you will be clear. The terminal lucidity effect. The mind just is free from the brain. And you can see clearly and also, the idea of a last thought before you pass away. How can you have a good thought when you pass away? It has nothing to do with your willpower. Did I tell that story of the man from Colombo recently in sitting here? Was it last week? No, okay, here it comes. <coughs> Colombo, Sri Lanka. This guy, he was what we call a Vaisak Buddhist. He only goes to the temple on the holiest day of the year. And when it comes to any other days, any monks or nuns coming around on arms round, he would just you know, stay at his business. He'd you know, give a donation on Vaisak Day, but no other day. So he was not really, just, his heart wasn't really in it. But then when he did go to the temple, he heard one of the monks give a talk that the only way to really go to heaven is have that last thought, a good rebirth, have that last thought before you die, a very good one. How can you do that? And then the monk said, well actually, the best thought you can ever have just before you die, one of the best, is to remember the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, the triple gem. If you can recall the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha just before you die, it's like you're almost guaranteed to have a beautiful rebirth. It's an inspirational thing. So he, he wasn't listening to the talk anymore. He started thinking an idea came into his mind. Well, he said how he can beat the system. You know, the law of karma, that's his system. Anyway, it's quite a brilliant idea. How can I make sure that I remember the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha as my last thoughts before I die? Quite a simple solution, really. Because he had three sons. So he went, after he came back home from the temple, he saw a lawyer and he legally changed the names of his three sons to the eldest one, to Buddha, 
the second one to Dhamma, and the third son to Sangha. Because he knew that his three sons would be at his bedside at his death. That's a tradition. And I'm sure that if you know your father was about to die, you'd try and get to their bedside just to be with them for those last few hours. And everything was working perfectly. He got very, very sick on his deathbed and his three sons were very pious they were with their father at the very end. And he was looking at them. Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. I'm going to go to heaven. Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Of course, you're looking at your sons, you remember their names, you know, think about them. Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. I'm going to heaven. It worked. But then, a thought came into his mind. If my three sons are by my bedside, who's looking after my shop? And that's when he died. <laughs> the greed and the concern for business just overrode his last few moments. And that's what he thought about at the very end. One of the reasons I keep telling that story was because you can't fake this. It's actually just who you are, how you've been thinking all your life. Not what you tell other people what you're thinking, but what you're really thinking, the honesty inside of you. When you go to bed at night, you're by yourself, no one is listening to you except you. How do you think? How do you feel? That is what makes you go to a heaven realm afterwards. That's one of the reasons why it's such a how you've been living that defines how you die. And then when you do die, when other people do die, that's one of the reasons why if you lift them up with some humor, with some kindness, that's really important. You know, I was also saying at the hospice, they were asking, what do you do when the relations, they put all of these little electronic things which have permanent chanting. It goes on and on and on, all the time. You know, 24, 24 7. You know, I often thought, if any, have you seen those things? But anyway, if they ever did that to me, and I died, I'd come back as a ghost and smash that. <laughs> it's more important to have quiet peace. That to me is much more important than chanting, 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 especially if it's in Chinese and I don't understand a word of it. <laughs> so that silence when a person dies, that's the most beautiful. It's peaceful and if you know, you know how to get some beautiful last thoughts. And one of the great thoughts you can have when you pass away Think of all the things you've done in your life. The good things you've done in your life. If I had just died right now, wow. If I was reborn, of course. I've done a lot of good things in my life. You know just right now what's happening? It's a good excuse to put this in. You know that uh, Venerable Chanda over in UK? So it just so happened when I was visiting over there in UK, we found a very, very appropriate 
piece of land with a house on, you know, for a nun's monastery over in the UK. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to donate any money. You've missed your chance already. They've got enough funds over there. But just to be able to get it for them. They have a beautiful place where she can have a monastery for women. Not just her, but for other women as well. Vietnamese-born women. <laughs> all, the, all sorts of people. But honestly, it's something which motivates me. Why is it easy, well not really that easy, but still much easier, to have monasteries for men? What about for women? LGBTQIA+. Just if you want to, make it available. But anyway, it's actually happening. And uh, things look really good at the moment. So that makes me feel really, really good. And know uh, you're a part of making that happen. And all the other monasteries here, you've been part of making it happen. If ever I start thinking like that, I just get blissed out. Just the thoughts. Making something beautiful and good for people here in this world. Even, you know, sometimes I've mentioned all the stories of people I meet in a place like UK. So many people. One woman whose face I can just visualize now. She said, I only came to your talk to say thank you. Going through a divorce, very painful. And said, you kept me alive. She meant that. Little things which you say. People who go through terrible experiences. One of the first things I said, don't blame anybody. Don't blame yourself, don't blame your partner. That blame, that finding fault, that is one of the reasons why you get so negative when these things happen in life. When you get sick, do you find fault? If ever you do get COVID, I hear it's actually passing now, but if ever you do get COVID, you lucky thing, you can have a retreat. Yes, they call it isolation. I call it quiet time for yourself. The wonderful thing about sickness is you do have people caring for you. Remember the first people who got COVID over in our monastery in Serpentine? They had a wonderful time. The first day they you know, felt a bit sort of low energy. But then afterwards, you know, the monks were bringing them food. They didn't need to go on arms round. We just found out what they liked to eat, so we served them food. They had no work to do, no chores to do. We would wash their robes, everything for them. I got, honestly, I never got COVID, but I did get jealousy. <laughs> Why don't I <laughs> well, What happened there was just, is looking at things in a positive light, instead of always being so negative about things. And that positive light which you always dis uh, you know, keep developing, that is just what creates those beautiful thoughts in your end. end. You may have not succeeded as much as you wanted, but you've learned a lot. You've given a lot. You've been so kind, so caring, generous you know, to so many people. Think all the people 
that you've been kind to in your life. Those are beautiful things to think about at your very end. Don't just think about the weeds in the garden. Yeah, we've all done stupid things. I've done my share of stupid things in the past. But, you know, just it just comes up just to show that I'm a human being. You know, once when I was young, about five or six years of age, just with my couple of friends, six years, probably about six or seven, I had this little coin, which was like, an, I think, an Irish sixpence or something. It wasn't worth anything in London. You couldn't buy anything with it, because it was not the currency there. So I went up to a gentleman, this old man, who was, you know, a bit sort of blind, and said, can you please change a sixpence, sir? And he changed it for me. I felt so bad about that. Because my friend said, you know when that old gentleman counts his change tonight, he realized he's sixpence short? I was only five or six years of age. But I've never forgotten that. And <laughs> the last 66 years. So those are sort of like those kind of bad thoughts. I made up for it since that time. But nevertheless, we've all got some bad things which we've done. Actually, it's not that bad, is it? Do you reckon? <laughs> so anyhow, that being able just to um, forgive oneself and just focus on the good things you've done. Building monasteries helping people, just giving some hope to the LGBTQIA plus community. And I got into trouble on that years ago <coughs> when there was an article published here in the West Australian and it was saying that Dalai Lama had reported that you cannot be a Buddhist and gay at the same time, period. And quite understandably, many of the LGBTQIA plus community who come here, they complain, Ajahn Brahm, is this true? And the pain which they felt, which is so palpable, that we thought at last, you know, we've found a place where we're respected and welcome, and a spiritual path for us. Please tell us this is not true. And it's so easy to say, it is not true. You're always welcome here. You can be a Buddhist. you respected as a Buddhist. We've had so many Buddhists who were presidents of our Buddhist society, Buddhists who eventually ordained as monks, who were LGBTQIA+. I'm proud of them. Make that the opportunity. You are welcome. I'm not just going to say that. I'm going to make you welcome. I'm going to make everything possible for you. It's not just words. It's actually actions as well. And it's beautiful to be able to see that. So those are the sorts of things I feel very good about. You're welcome. Of course you are. And even like kids in places like Singapore. In Singapore, that 
reluctantly. They actually kind of, but it's not really that hundred percent just to be accepting of the LGBTQIA plus community. But I remember just going up there and giving a talk and saying, you are welcome. You are Buddhist. Welcome, 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 welcome. And then <coughs> I think the Ministry of something or other in Singapore, they, they didn't actually contact me yet. They contacted some of the other leading Buddhists in Singapore. So is it true that Ajahn Brahm is promoting um, LGBTQIA plus in Singapore? And the person who received that um, question from one of the ministries, I forget what it ministry is, but anyway, got that, replied, yes, just like the president at the time, the prime minister, I was like Go Chek Tong, said he was saying that he respected the LGBTQIA+. And then the person they asked said, oh, this is really interesting because at the last talk which I gave in Kong Meng San Temple in Singapore, there were a couple of fundamentalists, Christians, who were trying to stop people coming into the talk. And they said, ah, oh, okay, we understand what's going on now. Ajahn Brahm is getting too popular. And so he's been trying to get stopped. <laughs> that's, what, that's what's going on. And when the guy from the Ministry of something or other heard that, he said, oh, yes, I understand now. Any time that happens again, you can, here's my number, ring me up, we'll have those people arrested. He said, Ajahn Brahm is just being kind, as Buddhists are supposed to be kind, being welcoming. Don't we teach loving kindness here? Teaching it is not enough. You've got to practice it and stand up for it and make a sort of a, a strong statement that everyone is welcome. The whole lot. So anyway, I've got myself wound up now and impassioned. So I better stop now because I've already gone over time. So I hope you enjoyed some of that talk and hopefully you don't die yet. But if you ever do die, hopefully now you know what to do. Thank you for listening. <laughs> okay, any questions? Yes, Prem, you got your hand up first and I'll do the ones on the line afterwards. Ajahn, just to explain some um, uh, event when the, the caring nature of nurses helped not only the person they were caring for, but others around the place as well. I was one of the patients. I wasn't that sick. I was under observation for a number of days in a hospital here. And um, there were some other patients who were very seriously sick or they were kind of not very cooperative. They were abusive to the nurses. But more than 90% of the nurses were so kind and extremely, you know, un un unbelievably kind to these people. 
and whatever they asked for they were somehow trying to um, accommodate and all that sort of thing so the negativity that one develops towards that person who is screaming and abusing and all that gets diluted by the positivity of that nurse doing the kindness to him so that's how i survived actually a couple of days there otherwise i would have just you know i was strong i was fit enough to walk out i would have walked out and sat somewhere else i you know survived the whole night there just looking at these nurses how much are they trying hard to keep the, keep their sanity as well as the rest of the people they probably don't know but i mean what i'm saying yeah. is they are not only helping that person but they're helping others as well indeed they are the last time i was in a hospital actually staying there was 30 no, more than that. Yeah, 33 years ago, I think. 32 years ago. And I remember just one of the memories which is stuck in my mind is being woken up in the middle of the night uh, because I had to take something to make me evacuate my bowels to have a test the following morning. And to this day, I, I can never uh, dismiss this a uh, memory of seeing this nurse. This is one of the kindest faces I've ever seen in my life. It's like a little angel, like a heavenly being, just waking me up gently, please drink some of this. And I can remember that, and I fell asleep straight afterwards. I never saw that nurse again, but nevertheless, it made a lot of difference to the kindness which you experienced in places like that. And I know that many nurses tell me that sometimes they've got, um, what's it called, they've got duties to perform, they've got so many things they have to do, and they just sometimes they don't have the time, or rather not allowed the time to spend with a patient, which I think is really gross. It's wonderful to be able to spend time, it's even a doctor to be kind to somebody, to spend time with them and have that opportunity to be kind. That's some of the best medication ever. Totally agree with you. It's one of the very difficult jobs which people have, nurses, because we expected so much of them. So many jobs to perform. And the main job is just being a carer rather than a form filler is just uh, taken away. Anyways, I, I'll just do some um, questions here. Okay. Dear Ajahn, how can I deal with ulcerative colitis, a lifelong condition I've been diagnosed with? I'm worried about having to be on meds for the rest of my life and the restrictions it will place on my life. I am not a doctor, and I can probably be sued if I give an answer. That's terrible, isn't it? Just why we can't just be kind and give a good idea of what I would do. I don't know how bad that is, but one thing I do know is diagnosis. There's sometimes that I think for something like ulcerative colitis, I don't know too much about that at all, but I know there's 100 people say have I've diagnosed with ulcerative colitis and not two of those conditions are the same. Just the number of different diseases 
or conditions which people have, just calling it, this is ulcerative colitis, this is depression, this is schizophrenia, this is cancer, this is that. That's just an approximation. And I've seen it so often that sometimes you can have, say, ulcerative colitis. And if you believe that diagnosis too strongly, it actually becomes true. If you can, especially do some meditation, I keep on saying meditation, but that's the most powerful. Get the mind to go up and down where you have this ulcerative colitis in your body. Go up and down and like heal it, give it your loving kindness. Loving kindness works. I don't know how it works, but you take away, I think somebody told me, take away the inflammation and allows healing to happen. Doesn't always happen, but you give it a really good chance. So, anyway, I just don't think because you've got ulcerative colitis, now you'll have ulcerative colitis forever. Lifelong condition, are you sure? I've seen too many what people sometimes call miracles. There's one of those, just one which just comes to my mind, this guy over in Penang, because I'm going to Penang next in a couple of weeks' time. In Penang, this guy was, uh, had some very rare brain condition. And basically his brain neurons or whatever got scrambled. It was a physical condition. They gave him an operation. So it cured him after that operation, but it was incredibly painful. And they couldn't use anesthetic. And then, unfortunately, it was a rare condition. The only people who knew how to cure it or knew how to do the operation was in Singapore. That's why I get to know about these things. I know lots and lots and lots and lots of doctors in Singapore. And anyhow, after he was cured, he came back again, had remission. And that's when he came to see me in Penang. So what should I do? I just, I'm really so afraid of this procedure. It really is painful. And he said, but then his wife was just about to give birth to her first, their first kid. And he said, if I don't do anything, I'll die. So I have to do this operation. And I told him just how to do some meditation, really get into it. And he did. And he came and told me afterwards, he went to Singapore for the operation. They sort of shaved his head and just put this frame over his head where they're going to cut into his skull without anesthetic. And then they had to do the CT scan. Don't worry, this is a lovely story. It inspires me. They did the CT scan and then they said to him, so we have to do it again. There's something wrong. They did the CT scan again. They showed him the results. We don't know what's been happening, what you've been doing. The problem's gone. You're okay now. And so he didn't have the operation after all. He'd actually cured himself with the meditation. That's why he came to say thank you. He didn't need to say thank you because as soon as people tell me stuff like that, you actually see them in front of you. And he had this beautiful motive. He'd only do this for the sake of his family and he was free of that disease. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't get paid much, but my job satisfaction is just through the roof.
Okay, try this one. Dear Ajahn, I feel I haven't been loved for a long time. I miss the feeling and wish it would get better. What can I do? Thank you very much, Ajahn. There's so many other people like you in our world. We've forgotten how to express our feelings. And just know to be true to those feelings and believe other people when they say they care about you. So I don't know what, this is from Germany, I don't know what community you live with, but sometimes having good friends is really important. You know, the Kalyana Mitta, as the Buddha said, people who you can rely on, trust. Honestly, just imagine, you are a Buddhist, you're keeping your five precepts, at the very least you can be trusted. You don't tell lies. You won't exploit others. And that means that if you find a friend who keeps the five precepts, whew, it's amazing. They can care for you. It doesn't cost anything to care for somebody. And you get so much back in return. I guarantee that. I don't have to come here every Friday. I don't have to go back to Bodhinyana Monastery to look after the crazy monks or look after the nuns. I would do too much. But you can't stop me. <laughs> you enjoy it so much. Enjoy giving, caring as much as you possibly can. So if you haven't been loved for a long time, miss the feeling, go out and give some love to somebody. Don't expect to receive it. Give some love. Find a person who's homeless this time of the year in Germany. Be kind to them, pick them up. Just uh, give them some warm clothing, give them some food. When we can give love, then you receive it. It happens automatically, it's like law of karma. Do you imagine I have ACDC, you middle work, <laughs> ADHD. You know that I should actually look in a book and find out what is ADHD. Don't tell me, because you've got too many names to describe things, which sometimes you have ADHD in the middle of work. I always get pulled away by thoughts and can't come back for a long time. That's very simple to cure. Do some meditation, for goodness sake. And have these wonderful strategies where what you're working at make it interesting and beautiful. And then just the joy you have in doing these things, that will keep bringing you back. I give talks almost every week, actually not every week, many times a, a week. I don't know how many talks I've given in just even one week. But, do I get ADHD? Get pulled away by thoughts and can't come back for a long time? I enjoy giving talks, being with you, giving whatever I know and can help with each one of you. And you know, you're still staying here, you haven't all walked out yet, so it must be meaning something for you. So, can't come back for a long time. You know, one of the first things to do 
it's during work, so that's a bit of a difficulty. You tried Anapanasati for seven years without improvement. You should come on one of our retreats. The Anapanasati there is very easy. Please recommend if doubling down on meditation is beneficial, if other practices would be more curative for impulsive thought following and mind wandering during daily life. It only wanders off because you're not enjoying what you're experiencing right now. You can try somehow make your mind more interesting or make your objects of your mind more interesting. You know sometimes people tell me they can't focus on something like the breath for more than five minutes, but they can watch a movie for over an hour and a half and they just watch every moment of it. And it's just because of the enjoying, finding meaning in it and feeling that they're worth something. So, I don't think that's too much of a big problem. If you can find a place where you can learn some decent meditation and you can uh, do it with this beautiful sense of kindness. I often taught, because I saw this in myself, watching my breath, doing the breath meditation. It kept wandering off. So what did I do? Bring it back again. Wandered off. Bring it back again. Wandered off. And after about six years of that, I got fed up with it. So instead, my mind wandered off. You can wander off if you want to. Off you go. That little story which was so important of the woman whose son, only six years of age, Mummy, I don't love you anymore, I'm leaving home. And she helped him pack his bags. And she let him go at the front door. Off you go, son. Please keep in touch, <laughs> six years of age. That was brilliant. What did the son do? He walked down the path, opened the garden gate, went left down the road, and only about five minutes later was totally homesick. Turned around, opened the door, came down the path, mother was still waiting for, welcome home, darling. <laughs> That's called emotional intelligence. So that's what I do with my mind. If my mind wants to go off somewhere, off you go mind, I'll pack your bags for you, keep in touch, and your mind just goes on wandering all sorts of stuff. If you're kind to it, it will come back again. If you beat it up, it will be away forever. So be kind to your mind. If it wants to go off, fine. If it's doing work, that's more of a problem. Especially if you've know, got this work like being a surgeon. If you're cutting something, it wanders off somewhere. That's a bit of a problem. <laughs> but I don't think that you're always doing that at work. Last question from Bangladesh. Would you please advise me how to get rid of emotional attachment of anybody who abandoned me in spite of my unconditional love? If you did have unconditional love, you wouldn't be afraid that they abandoned you. If love really is unconditional, if you want to be somewhere else with somebody else, that's fine by me. That type of unconditional love becomes so attractive that other people come into your life. It really is true. You love someone no matter, and please say this to the, your partners, your friends, and to yourself, those beautiful words, you know, me or my partner in life, my best friend, the door of my heart will always be open to you, no matter what you do. 
no matter what you do, even if you abandon me, I will still always love you. You can always come into my house, into my uh, life, whenever you want. That is beautiful. Now, I'm going over time now, but... See, okay, here it comes. I said I wouldn't say this, but they shouldn't have told me this. I never really agreed. <laughs> that visiting my cousins in Liverpool. This is the cousin I visited was um, the daughter of my brother's sister. And my cousin told me that once my father stole from my sister. To, he needed to get to London, he didn't have any money, so he stole from her. And the sister sent this wonderful letter to my father. She said, you're my brother, you know, your family. The door of my house will always be open to you. That's what she said to my father. I never knew that. He never told me. But I do know that that's when he told me. Son, the door of my house will always be open to you. I never realized where it came from. It came from his sister, my auntie, who I only met once or twice. Can't remember her that much. But she told him, even though you stole from me, you're my brother. That's more important. The door of my house always open to you. That's kind of gave that story that just bit of extra meaning, which I really value. And of course, you no, know, I, I still love my dad immensely. Can't find fault for what reason or another he really needs to do that. So if somebody hurts you, abandons you, steals from you, forgive them. Especially if there's someone really close to you. And how many times should you forgive them? What's the answer? Always one more time. It's a lovely answer because you're not going to forgive them forever. But just one more time. And then one more time. And then one more time. There's something beautiful in that. After a while a person feels, this person keeps forgiving me. You never want to hurt or harm that person ever again. You can't. Anyway, that's the last of these questions here. I've gone over time again. I do apologize. I'm not going to charge the Buddhist Society of Western Australia overtime, so hopefully you don't charge us overtime either. Thank you for listening. So what I'm going to do now is do the, um, the bowing and the chanting, Bhutan Samanangachami, whatever it is, and then we can actually make it informal. Bhagavata Dhammo 
Dhammang Namasami Supatipano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Sangang Namami Mm-hmm.